Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. Well, 1991 is just about to come to a close, and before it does, we're going to get in one more message in the book of Hebrews. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to be talking this morning about a race. For those of you who are just joining us in this study, we've been looking for several months now in the book of Hebrews. I have told uh, this congregation a number of times that of all the books in the New Testament, I really believe this is one of the more exciting ones for American Christianity, for where you and I live, for the things that we struggle with. You know, our world is becoming smaller and smaller. Many people call it a global village. And as it does, we get all kinds of ideas mixing from different cultures. Uh, different faiths, different religions. In many ways, I welcome that. It gives us a chance to re-examine the faith that we have, whether it's true, whether it's real. And the book of Hebrews helps us do this because it compares Christianity to some of the faiths, and in particular Judaism, of that day. And the thing that stands out as you move through these first ten chapters of the book of Hebrews is the absolute superiority of the Christian faith. Now we can't go back over those things, but over and over and over again, the writer exhorts these people to settle for nothing less than the best. And the best is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior of this world. And then he makes mention of why he believes that to be true and why it's superior to Judaism and why in fact it is superior to all those faiths that surround our global village. In those ten chapters, the superiority of Christ is lifted up and the writer exhorts, to, exhorts us to enter into what he calls the rest of God. And the rest of God is really a place in which our faith embraces those doctrinal realities to the place that we begin to experience what I call the fullness of the Christian life. Now how do you do that? Well, you do that by the next three chapters that follow, 11, 12, and 13. These last three chapters are not doctrinal in nature, they are very practical in nature. And there are three main subjects that are brought up. And these three main subjects that are brought up in 11, 12, and 13, I believe are the three antidotes to the age in which we live. The first in chapter 11 is faith. Remember the whole chapter was about faith and the exercise of faith. We live in a world that no longer believes in absolutes. Uh, just recently, a Christian pollster by the name of George Barna, who is somewhat the counterpart to George Gallup in the secular world, did a poll of evangelicals concerning what they believe about the great truths of Christianity. To his amazement, he found that even in the evangelical community, almost two-thirds are shaky in believing in absolutes now. We live in a world saturated with relativism of sliding scales, and we love it because it allows us to pick and choose and to be our own sovereign island in the midst of other sovereign islands in the sea of humanity. But it doesn't work, does it? We look around us and we want good government, but we can't find good government. We want good schools, but they're hard to find. We want safe streets. We want good communities. We want our kids to be moral. We want all the things that Christianity and history has told us only absolutes believe. We want those things, don't you? Except we also want the freedom to live as a barbarian. And they don't mix. 
You can't have both. They don't work together. But in order to have absolutes, you must have faith. It's an exercise of faith. And that's what Hebrews 11 is all about. Hebrews 12, that we'll look at this morning, is about endurance. Peter Drucker said that good times are not good for civilization or for Christians. It causes us to major on minors, to focus on things that are unnecessary, to be people of creature comfort, to not have vision anymore, to not have challenge anymore, but to look at things that will make us just simply feel better. That's why one of the things that marks American Christianity is wimpishness. But that's not just Christianity, that's the world in which we live. Time Magazine had a very lengthy article on a nation of whiners. You hear people whining all the time about what they don't have. What would make them more comfortable, make life easier. Where are the pioneers, those of challenge, those of vision? There are not many. That's why we need a chapter on endurance. Then chapter 13 is one on obedience. And chapter 13 talks about the submission of life to higher authorities, to God and to man. And of course, as I've mentioned, we Americans are of a crass, independent spirit, and we find submission very, very difficult. These three antidotes to the malaise in which we find ourselves, can we measure up? That's what Hebrews exhorts us to do. In fact, it's not an epistle. When it gets to the end, he tells us, this is not an epistle. This is not a letter. This is an exhortation I give to you. I'm pleading with you. Listen. So, that's an overview of the book if you've just joined us. Now, let's turn back to chapter 12. And as I've mentioned, chapter 12 is about a race. How many of you have had some point in your life, and I'm not asking for anybody to experience, but there's been a place in life where you have run a fun run or a 5K or a 10K. Let me just see your hands. Let's see who has accepted the challenge here. Okay, there's a, there's a pretty good number of people who've tried that. You know, a number of years ago, uh, I ran, believe it or not, a 10K. And uh, when I was out there, as I looked at people and watched them show up and everybody getting their numbers on and getting ready for the race, it's, it's easy to categorize the different people and why they're there. And I've kind of broken them down for you. There are those who are there who I would call the dare use, the dare use. They're only there because someone dared them to actually come out and be there. Um, a number of years ago in 1980, they ran the uh, turkey trot. That was pretty uh, descriptive of my running ability. And, and so uh, Bill Parkinson came by and said, hey, you, you, need to, you need to join me in that. And he dared me and he dared me. And then finally, as he was walking out of my office after I'd told him no, he whispered under his breath, chicken. And that was enough to dare me and push me over the edge. And so I showed up with a lot of other dare use, and you could tell them. They were all scared. They weren't sure where they could do it. They were looking at each other and kind of scoping everybody out. There's a bunch of dare use in those races. Then there are a bunch of dreamers who are in these 5 and 10K races. Those are the ones who come out. They're really more of the dare you variety, but they get caught up in the excitement. You know, they, they get the thrill of what they used to be, kind of coming back up and the adrenaline starts flowing and, and suddenly they actually feel like they can compete with these guys out here. So the gun sounds and they take off in a sprint. Get up with, you know, there's always two groups immediately at one of those races. There's the pack and then there's the few elite. Well, this, 
these dreamers, they get right up there with the elite. They're on a dead sprint. Now, the thing I was told when you run a 10K, whatever you do, start real slow. That's what I was told. Pace yourself because you've got to remember it's six plus miles. The dreamer forgets all of that. He's got visions of glory. Suddenly, he's out with the pack looking at the elites, considering himself one who can do it and kind of scoffing the mere mortals behind him. He's Eric Little. You know, God has made me to run. He feels, you know, <laughs> he feels God's pleasure. You know, he's out there. <laughs> and then in the midst of about a quarter of a mile, he suddenly discover, discovers he's not Eric Little. He's Walter Mitty. And he doesn't feel God's pleasure anymore. He feels his legs cramping up and his lungs burning. And he feels sick at his stomach. And you can see a few dreamers on the side in the uh, gullies there of a 10K race. <laughs> then there are those experientialists. Uh, the experientialist is more the person who, uh, they've already made up their mind. They're not there for any other reason than just to kind of experience the drama of a race. Uh, maybe they uh, go out and buy the best uh, attire. They, you know, they, they like to feel the, the, the excitement of the event before it starts, the fresh air, all the people, you know, the, the, just the sense of the experience. Just being there is enough for them. And then out of that whole group, which comprises most of the people at a 10K, there are then this last group who are the few serious runners. See, when I asked you how many of you run in a race, a lot of you raised your hand. How many of you have raced in such a race? There'd be very few hands. Now, we have some serious runners in our church. We have guys like Max over there who runs up and down the Grand Canyon or several hundred miles at one time, or Steve Tucker who's off the Boston Marathon and places like that. There are some serious runners. But here's what I want you to know about a serious runner. He never runs on a dare. He runs out of a passion. The only reason he runs. He's got a passion for running. He's not a dreamer either. A real runner is an acute realist. More so than anybody out there, he knows what it's going to take. He knows how much pain's involved, most of which he's already paid before the race. He knows what kind of commitment it will take, and he is there not just to enjoy. He's there to run, really run. And though he loves the experience, any athlete loves the feeling of walking into a stadium and hearing the crowds and all that kind of thing, any athlete loves that. But an athlete is an athlete because he's there for more than that. He is looking to be the best. He's looking to find something within himself that hasn't yet been conquered, which in the midst of that athletic competition, he can grab onto that last missing piece and pull it into himself and maximize his performance. He's wanting to expand completely his confidence. That's a real runner. Now those four categories that I've just listed of people who run in races apply equally well to those who go to church. Did you know that? There are those who come on a dare. They go to church because somebody's daring them to at the office. I dare you, come on. You know, and they walk into this place like this and they're scared to death. They don't know what's going to happen. Then there are those who come to church because they're dreamers, and that makes up a much larger group of people. And I see them not only in church, I see them when I speak with uh, uh, conferences, family life conferences. Those are the people who love to hear God's Word preached well. Because in the midst of that preaching, they can see its clear logic. They can taste what it can do for a person. They hear us talk about 
individual lives and change lives like Larry's. And, and, and in the midst of all that euphoria, they begin to dream, I can do that. I can conquer that. I can, I can handle that problem. Especially in marriage conferences, I see that when we're in a compressed weekend where people are there all weekend and at the end of the conference you'll get couples coming down who walked in with a troubled marriage and they've been listening to God's Word and it makes such good sense. It's so relevant, more relevant to anything they've ever heard before. And they come down sometimes with tears in their eyes and say, this is awesome. I mean, for the first time, I actually understand why I got married. I can do it. There's only a problem with a dreamer, a Walter Mitty. He's never calculated the cost. And so he leaves there with all this vision of grandeur, this great dream that on Tuesday turns into a horrible nightmare. You know, there are people that go to churches all the time just simply to taste glory. Just to taste it. Just to know it's really there. Just to hear those great stories. But they never ever put together the puzzle that there's more to it than just dreaming. There's Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. Reality days. And it's going to cost you something to make this stuff work. And then there are the experientialists. And the experientialists love to come to church to cry, to be moved, to be entertained, to be comforted, to be convicted. But here's the problem with an experientialist. I love to do those things. But an experientialist makes experience an end in itself. And I want you to know, in American Christianity, this curse is rampant. After a while, the church is on the same locale as a ball game, as a movie, it's something else. It's something to go experience. And the more it can entertain, the more I enjoy going. Regardless of what truth is taught there, regardless of what it means, it's the same as in Ezekiel's day. In Ezekiel 33, it talks about the people of Israel at that point in time. And, and as God talks to Ezekiel, He says, Ezekiel, did you know they talk about you all the time in Israel? They love you. You are to them a sensual song. You're like somebody playing an incredible violin piece. You move them. And your name is everywhere in Israel. There's only one problem. They do not do what you say. See, they're experientialists. They love to hear Ezekiel talk. They love the idea of Israel being this grand, glorious kingdom of God. But the price... Oh no... No, we're not ready for that. We're not ready for the application. We like the entertainment. And then in the midst of any congregation are those who are serious runners. Not there on a dare, but they're on a passion because they want to know God. They want to advance the kingdom of God however they can do that. They want to discover their mission in the kingdom and how they can better their own personal life so that when they step out into Monday and Tuesday, the reality days, People look at them and say, now that's reality. That's real reality. That's godliness. Because I can see it work in the marketplace. You know, if you are a Christian here today, you have come into a relationship with Christ, you have believed on Him as your Savior and your Lord, you know you've invited Him into your life, and I hope everyone has done that. If not, you're not a Christian, if you had not had that encounter. But if you've had that encounter, this passage here says... That whether you know it or not, you hung a number on you and you started into a race. That's what this passage is all about. 
But the question is, and of course, this race I've, la I've labeled on your outline as the lifetime sun run. You know, they all have titles. So I think we're on the sun run, and it's a lifetime. But if you're a Christian, and you know Jesus Christ, and you're in this race, then the fundamental question that you need to ask, and it's a great time at the end of a year to ask this question, is this. Are you in the race as a participant, or are you in the race as a real runner? Are you there to kind of smell the roses, enjoy watching other people run, walk a little while, run a little while, have the best spandex outfit out there? Are you there to run? Remember at the end of Camelot, King Arthur telling that boy as he ran off, Run, boy! Are you there to run? Are you there as one of these other participants? That's the question. And see what Hebrews 12, these first three verses are all about, is to help us understand how we can be more than just a sun-run participant. Let's read the verses, three of them. Therefore, since we have a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, that great crowd, of, uh, cloud, by the way, is the, uh, the people mentioned in Hebrews 11. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Now as you read that, the things I want to focus on are the things that make you a real runner. I think there are three of them. You can fill in the blanks as we go. But the first would be this. A real runner has pride. He has pride. And I use that word not as it is denounced in the Bible as some overinflated self-esteem, but I use that word in a different sense. It was the best I could come up with, but it's a word that describes receiving a calling that is on your life. There's a pride of receiving that calling. This is for me, and I take pride in it. Notice in verse 1 it says, Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run. Not walk, not dally, not stroll. Let us run. Because there's, a, there's these witnesses around us, it says. Now, that word witnesses, just uh, as an aside, is often looked at as these people, these great saints of the past, kind of looking down at heaven, cheering for us like in a stadium. That's how you would think of it. And some have concluded by that analogy that perhaps people who have gone before us in death are able to penetrate the veil of heaven and actually watch us in our, our particular pilgrimage through this life. That may be true, but I don't think the Bible ever says that. And it certainly doesn't say it here, as I'll point out. I mean, it may be true that they can see. But when the word is used here in verse 1 of witness, it uses it clearly in the legal sense, as it does everywhere else in the Bible. It's a legal term, and it speaks of bearing a witness not being a watcher. Does that make sense? Like a legal witness coming and bearing a witness, not sitting there watching. You've got all these people around us. Hebrews 11 is called the great hall of faith, like the hall of fame. And all these people that are hung in this great corridor are bearing witness to us a simple, singular truth. What is it? 
It's that you can be a runner. Remember Bill Parkinson talked to us a few weeks back? You can be a real runner. We look at these people from a distance looking back and we say, well, those were extraordinary people. I think what Bill did so well, and I hope you heard it, is he said, these weren't extraordinary people. These were ordinary, common day people. These were people just like you, as flawed as you, as sinful as you, struggling just like you do, wondering, is this all going to work? That's who these people were in Hebrews 11. Now the fact that we look back on them and say they were extraordinary is because they did something that this text is asking us to do. And that is, are you willing to risk it all for Jesus Christ? Now, I'm not talking about giving up your goods and moving away necessarily. I'm talking about a life that truly does believe with a radical, deep-seated belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Lord of eternity. And if so, that will change your life. See, we can think of all the things that are going on in our life and we can walk through Hebrews 11 and it'll answer it. You may have problems in your life here this morning. You may have sin in your life. You may have circumstances that you can't overcome. You may have tragedies that hit you, challenges that are facing you. You can walk through this and find someone's picture hanging in that corridor who will say to you, I did it. I'm like you and I did it. Maybe you're struggling with some seduction in your life. Abraham will tell you, hey, I did it. Maybe you're lonely. Maybe you're single and you're struggling with with your sexuality, Joseph is standing there hung in the hall. And despite what our world says when it says everybody's doing it so we can't legislate against it, we can't stop it, etc. Joseph is there. He's got a different message. His message is, I did it. I did it. Maybe there's something God's asking you to do and it sounds ridiculous. It sounds too, too scary. There's Joshua. He's hanging there. He was a guy that faced this great wall city and God said, would you walk around it and blow a horn? That seemed ridiculous. He did it. And now he's saying to you, I did it. It worked. Maybe there's something you can't conquer. Well, there's David and there's Barak and there's Gideon. There's all these guys hanging there saying, we did it. You can be a runner. You may not feel like a runner. You may not have the outfit of a runner. You can be a runner. That's what he's saying. A real runner. Not back in the pack, but out there with the elite. You can be there. But it's going to take faith. You know, when I was in high school, I remember all the seniors' lockers were down on the first floor, and hung in that hall were all the state championship teams from all the different sports. And we were a small high school, but we had won more than our share of state championships. And I remember before my senior year, we'd been moved from the from a certain classification into the largest classification in the state of Louisiana to compete. And yet we were the smallest school in that classification. I remember right before the season opened in which we were going to play the largest high school in the state of Louisiana, who had that year before won the state championship. I remember every day going to my locker, and right above my locker was the 1950 Bearcat football team, state champions. Now they weren't actually there. They were only there to bear a witness. And every day I'd look up at those guys. And they'd say one message over and over again. We did it. We did it. Now look at those guys, and some of them were really little. Some of them didn't look like football players. And, uh, and, I, and, and I'd look at them, but they had a singular message. We did it. 
you know, that portrait didn't inflate my ego at all, my personal ego, but I'll tell you what it did. It made my heart beat fast. Thinking about playing the largest high school in the state, it didn't cause me to shrink back. It caused me to have a vision bigger than being a mere participant who was going to show up on that field Friday night and have Bird High School walk all up and down our team. It gave me a bigger vision. It gave me a pride. I didn't just admire these guys. It inspired in me, and this is the point, a healthy pride, a calling to reach high to give my best and believe that the best would put me somewhere beyond the pack. That's what we're talking about here. A lot of people look at Hebrews 11, and to them it's a museum where you go and just admire people. Admire people that you can't be. I think it's not a museum at all. You know what I think it is? I think Hebrews 11 is an inspirational seminar that pulsates with lives that tell you, you can be, you should be, you must be, you were created to be in the elite. That's what I think Hebrews 11 is all about. These witnesses are meant to inspire a holy pride so that when you run, you run to win, not just participate. Secondly, a real runner makes adequate preparations. A real runner makes adequate preparations. Notice in verse 1 it says that we're to lay aside two things. One, it mentions every encumbrance. And then secondly, the sin which so easily entangles us. Let's look at each one of those. First, the encumbrance. This word encumbrance, by the way, means weight. And uh, the, the thing that would immediately come to the mind of a first century reader is the ankle weights that the racers in the first century would wear to increase their endurance and their muscle strength. It's somewhat like uh, when you see a baseball player and he's in the batting circle, what will he do? He'll slip that weight on his bat, you know, just to create, increase the speed. Or what a lot of the football players are using now is little mini parachutes. Have you seen those guys that are out on the field? They strap a little mini parachute to their back and then they run sprints. And that parachute causes a drag that increases that endurance. That's what they did in the first century. Now, what you wouldn't do with that very good thing, because those weights were good things when properly used, but you would never, like Arkansas today, show up in the Independence Bowl and your tailback was wearing a parachute. That'd look <laughs> ridiculous, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, that's what this word is inviting us to understand. You see, an encumbrance many times was a good thing, but it became an encumbrance and it became bad when it expanded to a place that it caused you not to be a real runner. Someone said it this way, all of life is not a choice between good and bad. Much of life is a choice between good and best. Have you faced that before? Good. There's all kinds of good things that you can do, but they keep expanding to the place that they choke out, squeeze out the best of life, the things that are most important. You know, there's a principle I had to learn years ago. I still have to relearn it from time to time, and it's this. It's very simple. To say yes to Jesus Christ will mean I must say no specifically to a dozen other things. Good things, things I'm good at, things I enjoy, things I have the freedom to go participate in, 
but they cease to be good because they become parachutes that keep me from doing the best. In Luke 8, there's a parable of soils. And uh, if you'll remember in this third soil, if not, I'll help you, it talks about the Word of God being sown on these different soils. And one of the soils is a soil that is marked by riches and pleasures. And the seed is sown in the soil. And Jesus goes on to say that this particular seed that's sown, as it falls in this soil, it gets choked out by the riches and pleasures so that it bears no fruit to maturity. A lot of times you can hear people denounce riches and denounce pleasures in that verse. I don't think that's what it's saying. Riches in and of themselves might be a good thing. You may have earned it. Pleasures in this life, uh, there are many pleasures that are here for us to enjoy. I mean, Paul, uh, he wasn't some uh, monastic that withdrew from life. He said, God has given us all things to enjoy. Those things are not necessarily wrong. You know, if I were putting this verse on a screen, on a, on a TV screen, the word that I would put in gigantic glowing letters would be this one word, choke. It choked it out. It choked out maturity. It choked out the thrill of finding life in Christ. The thrill of discovering what I can do with my spiritual gifts, even though right now I have no idea, clue what that might be. But when I find it, it thrills me. It creates a satisfaction in me that goes far beyond just doing other things to fill time. And it's not something that ends with retirement. It's something that becomes a passion in my life. A lot of people don't even know what I'm talking about when we talk that way. But oftentimes, the reason they'll never get there, never, is because there are so many good things expanding around their life that they can't even sit down and think what that good thing might be, that best thing, rather. You know, probably a great question to ask this New Year's would not be just simply to make resolutions, but simply to ask yourself a very profound question, and that is, what are the good things that are really unnecessary? If I'm going to be serious about a Christian life, and by that, a serious Christian life is not sober, it's fun, it's exciting, it's challenging, and ultimately it's satisfying. But what are the good things that need to be removed? Then also, if you'll notice, it says the sin which so easily entangles. And on your outline, I put the in uh, italics for a reason. It's to help you understand how it's positioned here in uh, the Greek language. Here's the way it would read in the Greek language. It would say, and lay aside the most besetting sin. Do you hear, do you hear that? It's, it's a little different in it. It's not sin general. It's sin specific. You need to lay aside the most besetting sin in your life. If you're going to be a real runner, if you're going to advance out of the pack into the front. Well, the most natural question is, what is the most besetting sin, right? And the answer is, is that there isn't an answer in our text. And the reason there's not an answer in our text is because the Bible is asking you to answer it yourself. One of the things I've observed about my life and about other people's lives by getting an up-close-and-personal look is this. There is, in every life, one or two sins or weaknesses that will dog you all your life. You don't, you can overcome them, you can conquer them, but they don't go away unless you keep giving attention to them. You never stumble into righteousness, but the minute you stumble, this sin or that sin 
immediately comes back and haunts you and takes away and robs you of that which God wants you to have. It's the most besetting sin. A great illustration in a historical format would be David and Goliath. Remember Goliath, he paralyzed the armies of God. He was out there strutting his stuff. He was the most besetting sin of Israel. And they didn't know how to get rid of him. And so what did they do? They sought not to deal with him. Just hide behind the barricades. And it choked out their spiritual life until a young boy said, I'll take him. You know, in your life, there's probably something that immediately comes to mind. Or maybe there's something you're denying that others will tell you is in their minds. But until you deal with that sin openly and honestly and forthrightly and radically, using the weapons that God has given you and the church He's surrounded you with, until you deal with that sin and bring Goliath down, you won't advance out of the pack. You won't run well. For some of us, it might be just something as simple as unbelief or laziness. For others of us, it might be the lust for things or power. For many, it is the bondage of addiction, which is everywhere and in our church, whether it's alcoholism, whether it's pornography, whether it is one of the most chief sins of our day, and that's sexual immorality. It's everywhere. And no one wants to deal with it. But if you don't deal with it, it is like draining the life out of your arms, the spiritual life. And you're weak, and you're pale, and you're weary, and you can't go on. Not because you can't run. But because there is a sin that is wrapped around you like an octopus that you won't deal with. Face it. No one's going to look down on you for facing it. There's not a sin here that you couldn't stand up and say publicly that everybody in the body wouldn't offer you compassion and love and encouragement. The sin is not admitting it and not dealing with it. That's the sin. You can never be a runner. Never, unless you bring Goliath down. And then finally, a real runner has a plan. Now look at the last of verse 1. It mentions that let us run with endurance. When you read that, do you think of a sprint or do you think of a marathon? It's pretty obvious, isn't it, that he's talking about a much longer distance race here. And uh, unlike a sprint, in a long distance race... There is a whole spectrum of emotion that goes through a runner. Anybody that's played any athletics, but especially those who run long distances, know the different waves of feelings that sweep over you. And maybe at the start of the race, it's just a sense of exhilaration. Then, then a lot of times when the adrenaline comes down, there's almost a sense of exhaustion, yet you're barely into the race and your body's telling you to quit. Then there's a place when, you, when you're 10 or 12 miles into it and you hit what the runner calls the wall. And you wonder, I, I can't go on. And yet you, you really can, but you've got to face that monster. Then there are times where you get what they call the runner's high. And there's a sense of exhilaration. Or maybe there's sickness or injury. There's a whole gamut of emotions that run through a long distance race that you have to fight through and work through. Now why do I say that? Because it's a fitting analogy to the long distance 70 plus year sun run we're on. 
But we need to get real. Life has not promised us, no matter what the American dream says, that it's going to be a flat course. It's not flat. It's got bumps. It's got hills. It's got heartbreak hill almost every year to run up. And it's tough and it's painful and you get sick. Solomon said it this way. He said that life was a marathon of unevenness. And there'll be a time to weep. And there'll be a time to laugh. There'll be a time to tear down, a time to build up, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to keep and a time to throw away. That's what life is like. How are you going to run through all those seasons well? Well, verse 3 says, or verse 2, excuse me, says, you can only do so when you fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. Only when you have a singular focus in life. Now that may sound simple, but I want you to know it's also profound. Richard Foster helps us here when he says this. He says, modern man is fractured and fragmented. He is trapped in a maze of competing attachments. He has no unity of focus around which his life is oriented. You wonder why most of us look like buckshot rather than the silver bullet? It's because we have competing attachments, focuses always going to and fro rather than what a runner knows is chief, and that is the fixation of the finish line. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Jesus had a focus. It tells us here, doesn't it? It says, how did he run through all that he went through? He ran through because of the joy that was set before him. That's how he walked away, by the way, from all those adoring crowds who said, let's make him king. That's how he walked away from them. That's how he walked away from Satan when Satan said, hey, you don't need to go through all this pain. I'll give you exactly what you're here for if you'll just do it my way. That's how he walked through darker waters like the cross and the shame from mortals that he helped create who despised him and murdered him. How did he walk through all of that? With his head down? With his head looking around? No, the only way Jesus walked through all of that is by a profound faith that looked forward and said at the end, I trust God that there will be joy in all of it. And you know, that's where all of life comes down to, doesn't it? Finally, with all the stuff that around you, and you know your biological clock is ticking down. And at the end, it won't be some formless, waterless, dark void there. At the end, there is going to be a person who has already walked the walk he's asking you to walk, waiting for you. How will you meet him? Or will you just bump into him because you've never pulled your head up? See, that's what this is talking about. Jesus Christ lived with a focus. Now, some of you are going to say, yeah, but he was God. To answer the question that way misses the whole season we're in. The incarnation. This season says he was man. He put off his deity. He put off his powers. He reduced himself to you and me. So he could do what he's asking you and me to do. By faith. You know when uh, Peter was asked to walk on the water, remember that? This incredible moment. And he steps out and he looks at Jesus. I mean, there's a great picture. And he focuses for a few steps. Then he starts looking at the waves and the circumstances and he sinks. You know, we look at that, but you know what I like to think about? I like to think about a time that happened just before that. 
just a, just a few hours before that, when Jesus was walking along the seashore, and the Spirit of God said within him, Walk. And what did he think? Hmm. That's not natural. You could get hurt doing that. If you don't think he asked those questions, you've missed the incarnation. Now, did he have a great trust in God? Did he learn from God? Sure, he had been trained all through those years to trust God. But if you don't think he had a second thought about all that, you've missed the incarnation. He had to do it first. And it took faith, real faith in his humanity, to step out and do that which was so unnatural to do. And now, like somebody who's walked over a raging stream and found just the right things to stand on, it's kind of like me when I was... Recently, uh, we were out fly fishing, and they turned on the generators, and the water started going up, and uh, we found ourselves out, and the water was getting real high, and we came to this one place where there was a big pool, and somebody had to walk through. And you couldn't see, it was real dark, it was night, and somebody stepped off and walked through these waters, and you could hear the rushing water, and he got to the other side, and he said, come on, it's okay. And it was about this high on my waders, and I was going to step off into this pool. He said, no, I've done it. Come on. That's what Jesus Christ is saying. It's deep. It's cold. And it is dangerous. But I found the way because I am the way. I'm not just the author of faith. Do you see what it says? I'm the perfecter of faith. I've proven it works. And so all of life comes down now that we're facing a new year to this simple question. Are you willing to radically believe that. Because if you don't, it won't have an impact. It won't make a difference. You'll play church. You'll be a dreamer, a schemer, an experientialist. But you won't be a runner. Because a runner has had to deal with the willingness to lay his 70 plus years all on that point and say, it's worth trying. That kind of person will change. He can't help but change. He'll think different. His priorities will be different. It just will happen. Because that's what it takes. Remember in the parable of the talents. Remember that? The owner leaves. He leaves three men with some talents. And he says to each of them, I'm going away, but I will be back. Invest what I've given you. Do well with the money I've left you. And off he goes, and the guy that had ten invested it and made ten. The guy who had five invested it, he made five. The guy who had one became fearful. But really, I think he became lazy. He didn't really believe the owner was coming back. So he just hid it. But the owner did come back. See, that's the point of the parable. He did come back. And when he came back, you know what he asked for? An account. The one who had ten said, I had ten. And what does the master say to the one who made the ten and the five? He says these incredible words, enter into the joy of the master. See, when Jesus Christ walked into his joy, he turned right around and said, this is wonderful. I want to share it. Walk. Run. Come get it. Believe. That's what it takes. A number of years ago, I met a young woman who uh, really impressed me for her faithfulness. She had married a Vietnam vet 
who, uh, well, they had married before he went to Vietnam, but he was really troubled. He's had trouble since. Last 15 years, they've gone in and out of serious circumstances, but the thing that has impressed me the most is the endurance of this woman. Last year, she wrote me a wonderful 10 or 20-page letter. She writes real small, as you can see here, but a 10 or 20-page letter telling me of all the good things God had done in their family and their daughters and in Rocky. This year, she wrote me a one-page letter. Here's what it said. Uh, without, without reading all of it, there's some introduction here. She said, this has been an incredibly harsh year. So harsh, I can't write a newsletter. Rocky and I have separated in August, mainly because his anger became so ferocious and abusive. Our family couldn't take it anymore. I wanted him to commit to counseling, but he refused and still is. And in October, he, has, he filed for divorce. I think he believes life will be easier and safer without his family. He is most definitely deceived. Then she goes on, but I want you to think just for a moment, 15 years with a person, hanging on, building in, giving up your rights. How would you go on in the letter after she said this? Here's what she says. So I'm seeking to celebrate what God has given us not what God has taken away. I'm also doing reconciliatory things to pursue peace, if at all possible. And of course, I'm confessing my own sins and working on my own issues. I press into God moment by moment, and He comforts me from my loneliness and my hurt and my frustration of single parenting. That's a woman who's out front in the race. Way out front. You say, I can't feel those things. You know, I can't either. But she can. <laughs> she can. She writes a little later on in the letter. She said, I asked God, according to Acts 14, to open my heart like Lydia's. And He did in big letters. See, to run, you've got to have a plan. And the plan says, it's a long race. And the plan is, I've got to have a singular focus or I won't make it. Not well. So here's 1992, and you've got a choice. Want to be a real runner? <laughs> if you want to be a real runner, you've got to have pride. You've got to make preparations. You can't just sit around and think it's going to happen. You've got to have a plan. Because it's going to be a long journey, but it can be incredible adventure. But what will make it most incredible is to put it all on Jesus, spin the wheel, and let eternity come to a close for you and find out winner, winner, winner. Wouldn't that be great? That's the challenge here this morning. Let me close with this. Fifteen years ago, if you would have been in California or New York, if you'd have been in Illinois or Maryland or Boston, and you would have asked someone about what they thought about Arkansas track. They would have said, where is that? They wouldn't have thought anything of it. And then John McDonald came to the University of Arkansas. And since he's been there, and I won't be able to recount all the accolades, but he's won umpteen national championships in outdoor, indoor, and cross country. I mean, the SEC just found out how good Arkansas's track team is. When I was in California not too long ago, I was talking to a young man who ran track. And here's what he said to me. He said, did you know in every publication, 
or in every college uh, student who runs tracks mind, when they walk out on that track and they think excellence, they, say, they think Arkansas. Now, we don't have a lot of people turn out for track in Arkansas, but when our track team goes to Villanova, to the pin relays, they have 50,000, 60,000 people out, and what they want to see is Arkansas track. Because they're champions. Dare we believe, and I have this dream for us, that there might come a time where in California or New York or Boston, when they think about the standard of Christianity, they think Arkansas Christians. Can you dream that big? Is your sky that wide? To think that there could be people who could choose a lifestyle at such a level that they could set the standard by which others measure rather than TV evangelists. Could you imagine that? Can you dream that big? You know, in February, we're going to be talking about changes in our church and setting our sails for the next 10 years. It's a radical adventure. Needs to be. We don't need to be comfortable. We need to run. But you know what? You can never run. That message, those messages in February, they won't mean a thing if you hadn't first made the individual decision to be more than a participant. If you want to be more than that, this is a good place to be. Let's run together. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.